think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, it's episode 86 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 87th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. <laughs> it's in Randville. And uh, it's take two, as you can probably <laughs> tell. Um, yeah, no, uh, we've had a busy couple of weeks, despite the uh, parliamentary break week last week. Um, a lot of a lot of things been going on. Yes. In, yes. Both inside, but primarily outside of Ottawa. Yes. Outside of Canada, even, if you will. Indeed, yeah. If you're listening uh, on the train, uh, I hope you, you downloaded a bunch of these. Uh, <laughs> I think I was stranded on rail cars. Uh, that would be kind of funny, though. Sort of a Snowpiercer thing, except it's not moving. I don't know what the okay. Snowpiercer Pe- People is. who got that will have laughed to themselves. Uh, that's fine. So uh, we want to start off talking about... Um, is that a James Bond movie? No, it's it's Bong Joon-ho, who's the director of Parasite, did a movie a couple of years ago about people on a train and sort of a nuclear winter kind of situation. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. Okay, Mr. Mr. Oscars. Yeah. Um, Parasite was good, by the way. Did you see it? Uh, the only Oscar movie I've seen is American Factory. Also very good. Did I get nominated for anything? Uh, it won Best Documentary. Oh, well, there you go. Have you seen it? I have not. I think we talked about this recently, actually. You should watch it. It's on Netflix. Okay, I'm probably not going to do that. You should, you should watch it. <laughs> uh, do, we both watch Uncut Gems, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's For anyone who hasn't watched it, it's really good. You should definitely watch it. Runner-up for uh, Best Documentary. Yes, definitely. Um, but yeah, so Prime Minister was out of town uh, recently uh, to drum up some support for uh, Canada's bid for the United Nations Security Council. Which has a vacancy, or an upcoming vacancy, I suppose. Yes. Uh, so for those of you who may not be aware, there are five permanent members and I believe ten non-permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. So, something like that. Yeah. Let, let me preface this with, I think neither of us are like... UN experts? UN buffs, even, yeah. or like moderately... The closest I've come to caring about the UNSC is playing Halo. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, neither of us are super pro-UN, but then again, if you looked at the government's actions on this, you'd be forgiven for thinking that perhaps the government over the past four years, its first mandate, was not really pro-UN either. Canada's back, baby. Woo! Um, It's good again. We sort of went from the Canada's back moment um, at UNGA a few years ago. To... That's the United Nations General Assembly, <laughs> for those wondering. You really slip into the jargon effortlessly. <laughs> You're a born craft, Etienne. Um, to this, like, last-minute bid for the Security Council. It really does have the feeling of someone who realized their final is at 5 o'clock today, and they didn't study at all. <laughs> That's what's the most bewildering thing about all of this. Like, I believe that of anyone in government, Justin Trudeau is the most passionate about the Security Council. And thinks that we really need to have our Security Council seat, multilateralism, raw, raw, all of Post-Defendion leaving, he's probably the biggest advocate, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, Because before I would have said him, but yeah. Mm, Fair enough. Um, But when you look at the government, see, this is, I mean, Stefan Zellin doesn't get much credit here because they didn't do a lot over their first... I'm not saying he did a lot, I'm saying he Four years. Well, I mean, the man was in a position where he's able to push resources into things he cared about. The thing with Stefan Dion, as we all know, is that it's difficult to make priorities when you're... <laughs> <laughs> when everything is a priority. Yeah, it's a... Um, yeah, so I, I think I remember like an OPQ or an ATIP or something revealing that like 1.2 million was spent on this 
uh, security council bid, seat bid. Which is not a lot of money before anyone has like a, a coronary driving back from the rink at five in the morning with their Tim Hortons in uh, the good old heartland. Yeah. I mean, if staff salaries are accounted in that, I don't, I don't know if they were in this calculation, but that ticker increases very, very quickly. It's all just big gift baskets. <laughs> Comically oversized gift baskets. Once, uh, once staff, and I think there is like a little secretariat in global affairs of people who are probably covered in dust because they've been doing nothing or virtually nothing over the past four years who were sort of startled awake by a mandate letter that reaffirmed that the government was going to try really hard for the security council Those people are probably horrifically offended. At like literally the last minute. Um, so towards that end, Trudeau, out of basically nowhere, sprung up this idea of going to Africa. Hey, we got one. For Africa. We got one. <laughs> and trying to get vote and rustle up some votes. And we got one. That's um, you know what? Mission accomplished. <laughs> we got one, folks. So the general, I, again, I'll, I'll reiterate, I'm no, I'm no expert in this, but the general consensus seems to be that uh, Norway and Ireland are direct uh, opponents for the seat are much better placed and have been... Yeah, they've been putting in the groundwork for the last couple of years. Like, the yes. Prime Minister of Norway did this exact same thing last year. Yes. Uh, Ireland's Prime Minister is probably not going to be Prime Minister much longer, but, you know. Yeah. So, we're showing up too little too late, um, meaning the Prime Minister... I mean, we didn't even... Christia Freeland never even went to Africa during her entire tenure as... Uh, Foreign Affairs Minister? Foreign Affairs Minister. Yeah. It, was, it was one of Champagne's first stops but like freeland was so embroiled in canada u.s yeah which fair enough that like everything united nations really got put on the back burner um so maybe it's just because like when all the chips are down it's like actually not that important yeah <laughs> maybe, maybe there's a hint there and yet now in a minority government it's where the prime minister is deciding to invest his energy which is rather bewildering yeah um so all of that is to say uh somewhat confusing decision to fly off and invest one's political capital there um, with a multiplier bonus of worst week you could possibly be doing it. Yes. Um, when the nation's railways and uh, ports and assorted other things are being closed down uh, basically coast to coast by uh, an assorted array of protests and solidarity protests for the Wet'suwet'en. Um, You're close. It's yeah, fine. Do, yeah, that for <laughs> Etienne Sanders, that's pretty good. I started second guessing at the last minute. Um, so bad luck, like the so that yes, like the 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 absent prime minister thing. I think is every time he leaves the country, it does seem it does seem like he has a bit of bad luck when it comes to leaving the country. I'll give him that. He was on vacation when the yes. Iranian uh, uh, or the Americans struck back at the Iranians instigating that whole um, can't remember the causation the chain there I think let's accept is a bit uh, difficult to follow sure yes uh, who's the name that I'm forgetting uh, Soleimani Soleimani yes yeah. Uh, and yeah so he was in where some hot country during Iraq. that oh no sorry uh, not <laughs> Soleimani <laughs> true no. uh, yeah it's Costa Rica Costa Rica yes yeah. Jurassic Park. Well known for having top access to top secret phones and uh, indeed, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, they do have the dinosaur thing though. What's the dinosaur thing? Jurassic Park in Costa Rica. Yeah, did you never read the book or see the movie? Uh, no. Well, mm. I, I mean, I saw the movies. Oh, okay. I was gonna say you've never seen Jurassic Park. I just don't remember. It's some island in the Pacific or something. Not wrong. 
but okay. Where's, uh, where's the island? It's in the Caribbean. Okay. Yeah, it's on the other coast. Hmm. There you go. Uh, some someone's gonna write me and be like, <laughs> actually, it was technically. Yeah, no, uh, that's fine. Um, yes, all that to say that he does have a spot of bad luck when he leaves the country. I think when it comes to the optics of this trip as well, like even leaving. Let's leave aside the bad timing thing for a minute. Sure. Um, the image I think people will remember is the him taking his photo op with the Prime Minister of Senegal. The front page of the yes. Senegalese newspapers Indeed. were uh, very generous. Yes. Uh, which was perhaps not the best look. In Well... To, to those who aren't subscribed to the Senegalese newspapers. What, do, do people seriously not read Senegalese <laughs> newspapers? Um, it was like all caps, sort of Toronto Sun sort of uh, caption. Hey, it's a look that works. What, what it's was a proven the, look. What was the line? Like, uh, like, there are no homosexuals in our country or no, something No, that like was that? Mahmoud Ahmadinejad at Columbia University in 2008. <laughs> yes, my mistake. Yeah, come on. Uh, no, I mean, to the effect that it was, it was something not very flattering to, uh, to LGBTQ people sure yes uh and you know trudeau there giving a big goofy smile and it was like yeah anyway i mean yeah it's just a bit it, this is not to say that trudeau has like you know like hidden views on lgbtq people that he's you know, i don't that's obviously not the case it's more just that like the the look of like going to shop for un votes and then having like oh this is the one you got the one from the guy who Use this photo op to be like. I honestly couldn't tell you if we have any others or if this is the only. This is gonna be Senegal. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I think the beard is not solving the problems yet. Let's put it that way. He was he was supposed to be going to the Caribbean to I guess do the exact same thing. Yes. Um, But that has also been called off. The beard thus far has been cursed. I think he needs to shave the beard. (laughs) It's not working for him. In light of the uh, solidarity protests. Uh, so let's touch on those very quickly. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, as our starting point, we we did not prepare nor intend to do an explainer on this issue. I no, think, nor are we well placed to do so. Yes, I think uh, you know several, not several weeks in, but yes, yeah, it, sort of several weeks in. Um, there have been innumerable pieces written on yeah. this where you can sort of get yeah. yourself a primer. The Globe and Mail has the Globe had, a had some of the best, very excellent one the writing. other day about what's out in politics like broadly and explaining sort of the conflicts and the you know this hereditary chief system etc uh i think it's very good and you should read it uh marie sinclair also uh posted on his blog the other day which is like you know someone whose insight is valuable into how other parts of indigenous canada are seeing this roll out which is obviously relevant um so there, there's like good resources out there. We we are not necessarily those resources, but uh, yeah. All, all of that being said, I think we're gonna skip the Oppo style uh, back and forth confrontational Rip. conversation about uh, R.I.P. Oppo. Oh no, they still actually do it. No, they? it's yeah. back. Woo! <laughs> Great. Um, where? Oh, with Grimes's mom, right? With Grimes's mom or the the musk grandmother if you will um very good <laughs> completely lost my train sorry um so all, yeah all of that is said i think i think we should just observe that um there are not so for, first and foremost not a ton has been said on the ability of politicians to command police officers 
It's um, almost like we had a big whole thing last year about like <laughs> prosecutors, elements like, of the justice system with which you can and can't. So basically, last year we had law. This time we're having order. We're getting both of them, <laughs> and why you cannot mess with either. So the short version is that these uh, are their stories. Politicians, the prime minister is not in charge of the RCMP um, in a capacity so as to directly um, tell them what to do, if you will. Um, the Minister of Public Safety, who is actually the one who has the closest relationship with the RCMP, uh, is the minister who oversees them, has to be exceedingly cautious uh, in his or her day-to-day -day work yeah. um, about not directing the yes. RCMP with anything related to enforcement activities, investigations, yes. anything so, along so those lines. So much like the relationship between the Minister of Justice slash Attorney General and the Public Prosecutor. Yes. In, 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 a, in a perfect world. Yes. Um, the Minister of Public Safety can set broad policy things. You know, he can change the hats they wear and the, the cut of their boot. Can he cancel the musical ride? He probably could cancel the musical ride. Um, RCMP officers will no longer be associated with equestrian, ac equestrian activities. Um, yeah. And also, I mean, it's worth noting, the RCMP, when we talk about them, often it's thought about federally, but the RCMP also exists at the provincial level through contract policing and have provincial ministers of public safety sort of counterparts yeah. um, in all the various provinces. British Columbia uses RCMP as their provincial police force. Um, Ontario doesn't. Ontario has OPP. Quebec mm -hmm. doesn't. Quebec has SQ. Alberta does. Um, so there's sort of a, a patchwork of policing, and they all sort of have basically different uh, they, they're all, they all are sort of independent of each other and also broadly independent to the political are level Quebec, Newfoundland and Ontario are the only three provinces that have their own provincial police forces yes I think so I, that sounds right to me Yes, I, the guy from the Manitoba constabulary can, can write <laughs> us and be like how dare you no Manitoba definitely has RCMP I know it's, yeah, it's um, so I, I mean my point in raising all of that is someone to observe um, at how unusual it is that the police of jurisdiction in each of these places have broadly chosen the same approach. Yes. Um, you haven't seen the SQ or the OPP or the provincial RCMP detachments take very different approaches to dealing with the protesters, um, which has you know led to our current position. Um, obviously, very complicated situation. Um, and one in which there isn't really a clear path forward. Yeah, I mean, this is the big thing is that ultimately this is just, there's not any, there's not a button that is just says solve this that someone isn't pressing. Yeah, I mean, from the company's perspective, uh, because I guess just walk through the options very, very quickly. Um, they've obviously invested an enormous amount of financial capital and effort and all these things uh, into the pipeline and only the pipeline the route that um, they've proposed. Uh, there was a CBC piece on alternative routes that's worth reading and that talks about some of the complications of just going around the territory and you know there are a lot of logistical complications that come into this as to you know adding dozens more kilometers and at what cost or other areas where you're going to disrupt various things. Um, so from the company's perspective, they obviously just want to get things built. From the policing perspective, I mean, the common argument seems to be just enforce the law, start arresting people. 
that obviously carries with it a high risk for escalation. Yeah. Um, as well as the expansion of protests and solidarity for the protests growing and more disruptive protests across the country. Um, in response to you yeah, know, the, I mean, vi- the visuals of people being arrested. Yeah, the, and... the arrests at the sort of checkpoint in Wet'suwet'en Territory in BC the other week, I think, did make things worse. Well, that's what prompted the yeah. situation we're in today. Exactly. So it's like, I think there was a bit of like of a twice-bitten, once-bitten, twice-shy, yeah, once-bitten, twice-shy phenomenon there. Um, and so the other actor, I mean, from the government perspective, both the provincial government and the federal government. The federal government views this as not really their jurisdiction, um, although they're lightly beginning to intervene now. Yes. Um, the provincial. Well, I mean, to give them some credit, like they they've been sitting down in Ontario. Sure. Yeah. But in British Columbia, which is sure. the the source of the sure. actual initial issue and the issue that this is, is sort of core issue, shall we say? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, dealing with the Tyendinaga in just outside of Belleville um, is only, you know, a, a symptom, not not the mm-hmm. not the causal issue. Um, so police have obviously been very reticent there. Um, on the side of the protesters, I think it's safe to say the Wet Wetsuden 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 see it as somewhat of a binary issue, um, like pipeline or no pipeline at this point. Um, They've been entrenched for 10 years. This this is, I think, something that's often overlooked, that it's been 10 years of them holding this position and trying to occupy the land um, of, of the group of the West... What's what, what's, it's really bad at language, eh? What's so then? That are opposed, of course, acknowledging that um, the various dynamics there, that not everyone is opposed. Um, so, I mean, that's my broad overview of why it's a difficult political issue and yeah. why the easiest path forward right now seems for everyone to sort of freeze and try not to make make things worse. Yeah, I mean, no one really wins with a you know, dramatic escalation and no one can really, you know, either afford to capitulate or want to capitulate or capitulate is not really the right word, but to, you know, to walk it back. So it's it's definitely a very tough stalemate. Um, but all, all of that to say, the it's a crisis begging for a solution. Yeah. Um, because, you know, a, a country can only go so many days without its rail lines. As we're now learning. See, this is the one thing for, for rail nerds is, you know, this is your golden moment. Everyone cares about rail again. Yeah, seemingly very important, as yeah. we'll learn. We'll, we'll learn what is transported by rail very, very quickly. I think here. Indeed, um, the other thing that's been going on in in the world broadly is uh, the COVID nineteen slash coronavirus novel coronavirus, I should say, because there are other coronaviruses uh, outbreak uh, centered in China, central China to be precise, uh, and with you know sort of cases throughout Asia, uh, some in North America, and elsewhere, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, that seems bad, but on the other hand, the the round-the-clock Canadian political coverage of it seems a little beside the point. I mean, it was just, like, from my perspective, it seems like the public health agency is, like, managing it well and has been communicating pretty effectively about the risks and... You know, general precautions, etc. Like it seems like a, a something well handled by a largely effective public health agency. Sure, 
Um, if I if I may recommend uh, an interview on a podcast, I think it was Deep State Radio. David Rothkopf. That's uh, such a bad name. Oh my god. <laughs> Um, Full body cringe hearing that. <laughs> Recently did a, uh, an interview with a public health expert from the uh, the WHO. Um, people are going to look back at all their Trump stuff. Like, people <laughs> look at mullets now. It's going to just look so tacky and awful. It, it's Get, go ahead. more of a joke than Go anything. ahead. What did Deep State Radio say? Uh, but no, they had an interview with a formal, uh, former, I believe, WHO official. Um, who really lays it out very well. Yeah. Um, just to briefly share my sort of perspective on this and the, the Ottawa version. Um, the amount of resources and sort of interdepartmental coordination that outbreaks like this require is substantial and really can't be understated. Um, from CBSA to Health Canada to immigration to take your pick everyone basically gets involved there's you know heaps of meetings to attend where the smallest status updates it's also federal provincial coordination everyone you can imagine sits around the table at times like this Um, so these are when things are going well examples of the government doing good work on its most complicated issues Mm -hmm. in, in a very timely manner um, and they, they can absorb a lot of political time. I imagine the Minister of Health has done very little uh, besides coronavirus stuff um, since her, well, since it was, uh, yeah, came across the, the public health radar. Mm-hmm. Um, also a good reminder of why it's generally bad to not have a government for six months. And uh, perhaps we need to move a little quicker in in democracy from I, time to time. I do wonder what the the story of what took the Trudeau government so long to wake up after the 2019 election will be will be written. I'm I'm curious to get some insight into what was going on there. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, no direct linkage because coronavirus started to appear. Yeah, no, I'm not um, saying they all had coronavirus. We're <laughs> lying in no, bed. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> The coronavirus, I, I think, popped up right around the time that the government started to come back online. Yeah. Um, luckily, uh, because it would have, you know, been bad had this been in November when yeah. they were like, "We're going to wait a month to determine who cabinet is." It's like, come on, come on, you got to, you got to move a little faster than that. Um, why? Yeah, it'll it'll be an interesting story one day when we hear it about how I think uncoordinated. Uh, yeah, would, the government was in the aftermath of the election. And once again, it bears repeating that this is an incumbent government that's been there for you know five years already. It, it just it really is baffling how there was no real movement there. So there's a story from a long time ago uh, from John Turner taking over the keys to uh, the government from Trudeau Senior, mm-hmm. right? And these two hated each other. Ah, uh, well. Trudeau more hated Turner, I think, than the other way around. Um, and Trudeau served to sp- or uh, worked to spite Turner, um, basically dismantling the liberal or the Liberal Party's election machine, moving it in PMO, and then Turner basically didn't get access to them because they all left when uh, he took over keys with PMO. So he came into an empty PMO, basically with no Liberal campaign machine and election to run. In, I mean, he had to make the decision of when to run the election. Um, and ultimately failed incredibly. Um, 
there's an example of sort of internal fighting creating a great degree of uh, miscommunication and sort of sluggishness on on the part of the government within the party but it's it's a Trudeau government handing over to a Trudeau government so that could not be the case well I mean actually you present an interesting theory here is that the beard version of Trudeau is in (laughs) fact from the bizarro dimension uh and that's why it took them so long. Uh, not to give any, cre- I mean, not to give too much credence to uh, Jerry Butts, but I, I think this is probably one of the symptoms of not having a Jerry uh, Butts, a Jerry Butts shaped object, a, a Jerry Butts shaped object um, at the head of the government. Yes, um, that a lot of people didn't know where to turn. A lot of you know, lack of communication in the aftermath when everyone had been used to reporting to Jerry Butts for four years. Mm-hmm. No one was returning their calls anymore. Yes. So, yeah, well, fair enough. Uh, the other thing you want to talk about was sort of the big items on the uh, government's plate. Uh, before we get to that, I wanted to just note that uh, we might, 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 and less likely now than it was a couple of days ago, have a provincial election in New Brunswick relatively soon, which is interesting. And I know you don't think it's interesting from the get go, but my case is that this is an interesting. Make your case, sir. The interesting counterexample of BC and New Brunswick. Where BC has had a stable, stable minority situation, despite weird stuff going on with the Green Party, uh, where their leader resigned as leader, then resigned from caucus, but continues to somehow or like sort of consider himself a party to the confidence supply agreement, uh, or at least just respects it. Uh, and that government at this point seems not unlikely to just make it for its full mandate. Uh, which they had the election in 2017, so like they're they're already th- in their third year now, or heading up on it. Um, so no, they're in their third year, and they'll be headed up on their fourth relatively soon, I guess. Yes, I probably got the math wrong. Who do- at any rate, they've been going for a while. Uh, New Brunswick had an interesting situation where they had an effectively a tie in the legislature between the two biggest parties, and then a third party with three seats of a sort of. Um, anti-bilingualism, populist, uh, right-wing party, and then the Greens winning a handful of seats as well. Um, So a bit of an unstable situation there. And what's happened is the PC government last week announced that it was ending uh, overnight service for six rural emergency rooms uh, or emergency rooms at rural hospitals, uh, one of which is actually in the town where I went to school. Um, And... The, one of them, crucially, was in the Acadian Peninsula, where the PCs have one M- MLA, who's also a cabinet minister, who resigned from cabinet and from the PC caucus. Yes. Uh, and it's the first time in 100 years, because this is, once again, like, New Brunswick's fraught language politics is the first time in 100 years that a government hasn't had a francophone cabinet minister or MLA, uh, which is pretty, you can't really do that. Um, so Can't have a federal cabinet without a Western representative, but here we well, are. Well, here we are, yeah. Um, so it's fraught. Uh, it seems like they've walked back some of those changes, which may end up saving the life of the government. We will see. Um, but they, yeah, they might have an election. So could be interesting. I'll be honest. I didn't prepare for this segment. <laughs> on, uh... <laughs> no, that's fine. It was really just more programming note for, for people who may be interested. On, on New Brunswick politics. Yeah, and I think Saskatchewan is due relatively soon as well. They had their election in 2016. I mean, they must be. And, yeah. there, and there's... Yeah. Their election last time was like eight months or six months, whatever, after the federal. So who yeah. knows? Could be going soon. 
Um, yes, so you want to talk about federal agenda items. Yeah, I mean, just looking forward, um, there's three sort of, I mean, there's more, but these are the ones I'm going to choose to highlight. Um, three, two, two are a decision. Um, there's the Huawei decision. The federal government needs to make a decision on Huawei's access to 5G networks. Yeah. Um, there's the tech decision. The tech frontier mine. Tech frontier mine. T-E-C-K, not T-E-C-H. In uh, northern Alberta um, that they're also expected to make a decision on relatively quickly. Though it sounds like they're giving themselves room to punt, punt a little bit. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so we'll see on that one. And then the other one, not so much a decision, um, but something uh, looming in the foreground, if you will. Um, can is, you loom in the foreground? Yes, you can. Okay. Is the construction <laughs> of uh, Trans Mountain. Yes, which was um, an, they announced this week that it's costing a lot more money than they thought it would. The $12 billion yes. rather than, yeah. Um, which, which one to begin with? So, I mean... Could go in order. What unites that them is that there are hard strategic decisions that need to be made in each in each one of them um in huawei there's a question of you know international um alignment with the united states at a particularly volatile time in mm-hmm. kind of the u.s relationship. we're saying that the uk has decided to allow huawei into their networks increment or yeah, yeah to some degree to some degree yes um it remains to be seen what canada does um although the threats from the united states are certainly on the table is uk five eyes Yes. Okay. Um, so, yeah, TBD, I mean, the Canadians, I think, have a very close and are have a much more dependent relationship on United States intelligence than the UK does mm-hmm. um, because yeah, seem, seemingly most of our actual intelligence seems to come from the FBI and others, but here we are. Um, so, I mean, that's a multi-billion dollar decision that is looming. Um, and it's one that TELUS uh, seemingly is intent to press the government into a corner on uh, with the latest news. Uh, tech is being uh, framed as a question, uh, an existential question for Alberta's role in uh, Canada. I mean, I'm sure you would disagree with that. Um, but that's well, that's definitely how it's being framed. That's certainly how yeah, it's being no, framed. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, and so the political tempers are very high there. Um, and then on Trans Mountain, Trans Mountain. So in the announcement the other week, the completion date for Trans Mountain was twenty was set at twenty twenty, which is conceivably within the life of this minority government. Um, which means that construction for Trans Mountain will get underway, uh, or I mean, it is already underway in some degrees. Mm-hmm. But the more substantive construction that's likely to draw opposition um, is looming. Um, and it's interesting because Trans Mountain was sort of, that's where I think a lot of people thought we would see the types of protests that are going on now, um, where Coastal GasLink was seen as they'd done everything right and there shouldn't be too, too much opposition and it should go reasonably smoothly. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, I don't know if people generally are of the view that it's impossible to sort of quantify these things in advance, um, but that the powder... Uh, that they're still keeping powder dry for further protests on Trans Mountain or whether or not, you know, they're going to wear themselves out on Coastal Gaslink and Trans Mountain will be um, 
smoother sailing as a result. I think there's a lot of sort of unanswerable questions there right now. Um, but yes. if I'm sitting in the Department of Finance or elsewhere, um, watching the coastal gasoline protests and you know, looking at my construction timeline for Trans Mountain, I'm probably getting quite nervous because the government has obviously invested a substantial amount of capital in it um, as, as they own it, as yes. opposed to Coastal Gas Link, which is tying up private capital. Yeah. Um, but one of the through lines on all of these, including uh, Coastal Gas Link, is sort of the question of how Canada is viewed. Um, internationally as a place to invest in. Mm -hmm. uh, a quick timeline of the federal government, of the liberal government, sort of macroeconomic uh, thesis. They hired Dominic Barton to do the, Dom the Barton reports. Um, yes, and the, as the finance minister's uh, council on economic growth. Yes. yes. Um, so he put out a few reports, and the government has basically tried to follow them to the letter, largely. Super clusters, things like that all came yeah. from the Barton reports. Um, but so did um, the establishment of Invest in Canada. Yeah, and Infrastructure Bank. And the Infrastructure yeah, Bank. Asset recycling, as they called it, was like the, yeah. Yes, two institutions that were established to attract foreign direct investment. Um, but what I think a lot of people are seeing from abroad, be it you know Wall Street or elsewhere, uh, when they look at Canada, is they're aware of C69 and the conversation that's been had around there and the perceived toughening of the regulatory environment um, paired with a largely toxic environment um, around protest and the construction of major projects. So I don't think that Invest in Canada or even uh, the Infrastructure Bank have been quite a swimming success in the way they were intended. And I think a lot of the liberals' economic thesis around some of this has sort of hit a wall. Yeah, I mean, I think both of those institutions were things they took a lot of political fire for. Yes. Uh, from the NDP on the, the privatization angle for um, the infrastructure bank and on the sort of like uh, chummy connections they hired for Invest in Canada. They, they brought people, you know, sort of from the broader liberal world. Um, yeah, so they've paid a political price for those two, and it's unclear what the real or political payoff has been for either of them so far. Um, so not not so good, I would say. I, I'm not sure what else to add there. I think that that's like a reasonable prospectus of, of the, the pulse of, of Bay Street and points abroad. Um, yeah, and I, th I think that's a symptom um, sort of at the end because in, Invest in Canada's role and the Infrastructure Bank's role is somewhat limited yeah. um, when the broader environment is viewed to be toxic. Sure. They're sort of trying to carry things across the finish line, um, lining up like names on papers, getting people to sign the documents. Mm -hmm. um, but when there is a broader environmental issue, and I mean environment, like regulatory environments yeah. and other things. Sure. Then a lot of that is never going to get um, to that level of uh, completedness. Let's say. Sure. Um, so, I, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh. I, so I was going to say. <laughs> go ahead. So I was going to say I, I think it has been a bit of an uphill swim for more now, um, in terms of trying to make some of these you know grand plans work. Sure. When. You know, when you so some broader economic numbers are certainly and have been positive, 
Um, but I think there still have been very real challenges lingering around this sort of economic strategy yeah. that the liberals have established. Though, I mean, I don't know that a hypothetical conservative government uh, would have been able to build more mega projects, resource or otherwise. Um, so it, it's really like, and I think that, you know, the, the Harper government didn't exactly manage to build a lot of them. And I know that that's what the liberals say when pushed on the by the conservatives on this. But it's it seems to me that there is a need for a more thoroughgoing political reckoning rather than a technical one, which I think is what they tried to do with T69, but it's clear that there is a fundamental political problem with trying to get these things built uh, that is not going to solve itself, which sort of circles back to the issue we were talking about earlier. Because I, I could easily throw in, I mean, just to add two more projects to the list, Site C and Muskrat Falls, yes. right? Um, in the list of mega projects that have hit Yes. Sort of innumerable stumbling blocks. Sure, though less of a different nature for both of those, or at least mostly for Muskrat, of a different nature. Muskrat was more just cost overruns, etc. I mean, as well as issues around indigenous consultation. Yes, they did have others. issues around indigenous consultation, but not ones that halted the project or put it on hold, etc. No. Um, perhaps because they, they were unable to build the level of solidarity across country that the mm -hmm. um, coastal gasoline I, I, I mean, I think that you could say that about anything, but yeah. Sure. But one has to wonder whether or not sort of the environment going forward yes. is going to be one where we are primed to... Yes. Um, because at the face of it, it wasn't obvious that Coastal GasLink was going to blow up. No, no, summer, and right? that's what I mean that, like, I think fundamentally, like, what we have is a political problem and not one of necessarily a regulatory environment. I don't know the details of C69 well enough to say that it is substantially better or worse than what it replaced. Uh, my impression is that it's better in a lot of ways, um, though I concede that my better might be for people. Someone else's worse. It might sure. be someone else's worse, sure. Uh, but just that, just to say that like the problems we're reaching are not problems with, not usually problems with meeting regulatory approval from the standpoint of hoop jumping, but from the standpoint of the political viability of projects? I think there's a combination. I, I, I think it is the combination, right? Because you can use Trans Mountain as an example. Yes. Where it was bogged down in regulatory stuff. Yes. And that is, well, regulatory and legal. Yes. And that's why the government felt the need to buy the project. Yes. Um, to de-risk it. Yes. Um, but now it's not even clear with the regulatory risk well, taken out of it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is that like that it is a, in fact de-risked. It is a problem to any of greater extent. Yes. Um, than I completely agree. With when you. it was going through the legal challenges, because yes. it still is though. There, there's still a Supreme Court appeal, but yeah, it, yeah. it remains to be seen whether yes. or not. That but is. let's say that the pro the problems are more or less political at this point. Yes. Yes. I I, I would say on tech. Um, I would. S it's a big project. Uh, how, I th how big? Uh huh. Uh, Andrew Leach has a great column about this, in fact, uh, at the old CBC and also on a blog. Uh, it's good. Um, I would not necessarily pick this as my hill to die on if I were an Alberta conservative. In terms of, like, if. Because usually you want to do that for the projects that are, like, you know. The, the mo like if you can't approve this what can you approve kind of project and I can think of like a lot of pretty good reasons not to approve this one in particular 
Uh, so it just strikes me like I get timing wise. I get that it's sort of the, the frustration. I understand the frustration. I get that there's a feeling that it's coming to a head. It just strikes me as this would not be the one that I would like really go to the mat for. So I think you're saying that based on a different set of considerations than the calculus um, that's taking place in Alberta. Right I now. don't doubt that. Yeah. I think there's a combination of timing. Yeah, I think it's like the timing um, is sort of bottling up a f or a sort of like reaching a boiling point of frustration. Like I understand that. There, there's also a question of scale, right? Like getting the approval and going to the mat on, you know, a small SAG-D project sure. um, is not nearly as symbolic as a multi-billion dollar mine. Yes. That this is sort of like there, there are all the questions around the economics. And when you read Leach and others, yes. they raise questions. And one of the questions uh, looming over the mine is whether or not its approval will... Uh, result in it ever getting built yeah um and so that's why it's and it seems like the smart money the smart money the is no it seems like um however sort of from the alberta perspective this is Al alberta fort mcmurray in particular and sort of the broader uh oil sands industry is used to multi-billion dollar investments um capital investments flowing into the region on yeah. a once upon a time it was on a monthly basis yeah and so with the prospect of a $20 billion mine, yeah, um, that's I, I have no trouble understanding why this is one of the ones that people aren't sitting yeah. around debating the finer points of when gas prices are this. No, no, no. Like, I, I, like I said, I totally, saying, I totally understand. It's a $20 understand. billion project and yeah. we'd like to build it. And so if yes. the federal government says no around the cabinet table, we're going to be pissed. I understand the, fr like, I totally get the frustration, right? Like, I completely understand. I, that's not really my issue. It's more that like, if you're gonna pick a hill to die on, this is like, as you said, a project that probably wouldn't get built even if it does get approved. Uh, a project that is like a real, not a winner on the environmental front, either on emissions or on environmental protection. What what, what would your, okay, put your, put your conservative hat on here for okay, a moment. Okay, put uh, my conservative hat on. Um, why wouldn't it be your hill to die on? Because it is not a project that otherwise looks like it would be a real winner. Like, if it were something that, like... $20 billion investment in an economically starved region. But a $20 billion investment that probably won't happen, even if it gets approved. Doesn't matter. It does matter. It does I, I matter mean, a lot. I mean, it does, it does matter. <laughs> Considering like, that there are, there are over 100 approved projects already, right? It, it like, does matter in sort of a very real sense. It doesn't yes. matter in terms of the calculus for putting your weight behind trying to get this project approved. Sure. I don't know that they're necessarily... And if anything, saying, if anything strategically, putting your weight behind this project... Um, Especially if they say no to it, yes, means that any of the other projects in the pipeline are, so to speak, are, yes, <laughs> will probably get an easier ride from cap. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. I think it's worth saying that this project has had more internal loud liberal dissidents than anything I've seen thus far. In you mean government. MP is speaking out? Yes. in opposition. Yes. Yeah. I cannot think of a time in the last five years where SNC did not get this much heat internally. Well, you mean, not internally, you mean 
MPs speaking out about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, no, too. I just mean like not like breaking. Yeah, like people coming out and saying, "I think this is a bad idea, and I would rather cabinet not do it." Right. Like, well, that's very easy to explain, though. Yes. Oh, because, sure. Yeah. Because yeah. SNC was at the time viewed as an existential threat. Well, to it's, the it's a mill, it's a millstone rather than like something people can dissociate themselves with. Where right? like, the liberals have no vested interest. Yes. In Alberta, no, I, I, which makes this that much more yeah, interesting and to be fair, as a political it's, hurdle. It's not Alberta liberals saying that they don't want this bill, right? Exactly. Because they there aren't any. But uh, I think that that like, but on the other hand, though, right, like. You look at where the Liberals won big this last election, and it's places, Toronto and places like Toronto, right? Like, that's where they did really well. And frankly, like, this hurts them at the doors in Toronto more than, like, a lot of things I can think of them doing. Agreed. But the same rationale fundamentally has underpinned the conversation around Trans Mountain the entire way through, right? Yeah. That Trans Mountain has long been seen by a lot of liberals as a political loser. Yeah. Um, in that it appeases people in Alberta and Saskatchewan, who first and foremost, who aren't, who aren't yeah. voting for them at all. Yes. Um, and in British Columbia, they're probably losing votes because of it. Yeah. Um, and in places like Toronto and Montreal. So why are they forging ahead with it? I mean, mm -hmm. to their credit on this, the liberals have, I think, understood some of the broader... Uh, nation-building elements to some of these projects in order to not just simply abandon Alberta and Saskatchewan more than they tend to sort of reflexively. <laughs> yeah, no, I, like, I, yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons for the Liberals to say no to this. I think there actually are, like, I, it really is a question of how much do they want to make people out West really mad uh, and how much they want to make the resource industry really mad because I think that would be, a fact. like, that is a factor as well. Um, so good luck to them. I think it's not something I would stick my neck out for as a project. Uh, seems like it's kind of bad, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there you go. Laurent will not be proving the tech frontier model. Yeah, no, if you, if you ask my opinion, not, not for me, guys, I, I will be passing on that one. I will not be chipping in, in this particular shark tank. Can you, can you spare $5 to support the tech? I Like this project legitimately would not win shark tank. Like Kevin O'Leary would be like, eh, I don't know. Lord, I don't, I don't think, I don't think so for this one. Kevin O'Leary, Brett, Brett Wilson would be chipping in on this one. That is true. Yes, <laughs> that is undoubtedly true. Um, this dragon's down here, isn't it? I said Shark Tank. Yeah, I know. yeah. everyone knows both. Yes, uh, sharks and dragons though very different. <laughs> Actually, very different creatures. Uh, I think that'll probably do it for us. That's it. That's all. I'd like to give the disclaimer that should have applied for the last eighty however many episodes that our views are our views alone and do not necessarily <laughs> reflect those of our employers. Um, so just consider this asterisk as applying retroactively to every episode. Uh, and with that... Uh, likes and retweets are not endorsements, folks. Indeed. Uh, you can follow us at ShortPantsPod. Uh, and uh, you should, in fact. It's good stuff. We have, we have a good chuckle there. Uh, anything else? That's it, really, eh? No, I think that's it. All uh, right. A lot more things will make sense if you follow us on Twitter. Yeah, that, that is true. Bye-bye, folks. <laughs>